0: Okay, so this episode contains like a swear word, so there's no need for a full-on content warning, and that leaves me with some real estate here at the beginning. So I thought I'd record a conversation with my friend Martin.
1: Hey, Martin. Hey, Aaron. I got a question for you. Okay, what is a bunt cake? A bunt yeah, yeah, I was in the pub the other day, and I overheard a couple of Yanks talking about bunt cakes. Well, you, you don't have bunt in Britain? I've never seen a bunt.
0: Okay. Well, as far as I know, I think they went by a different name, but I think all bunts come from Europe.
1: But there are a lot of bunts in America.
0: Yeah. America is basically full of bunts. And what does a bunt look like? Well, you've probably seen one before. It's got it's got like a mound shape with a flowery opening and then a hole in the center. And they're all the same size? No, 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 no. Some bunts are bigger than others. And this hole,
1: does Mm -hmm. this go all the way through the bunt? Absolutely. Straight through the bunt. Given that I've never had one, you're going to have to tell me, what does a bunt taste like? That depends. I mean, there
0: are all different kinds of buns.
1: So there's more than just your vanilla bunt.
0: Yeah. Okay, but they have to be moist.
1: Moist. Yeah. Not you, dry. No,
0: you don't. You nobody. Nobody likes a dry bun. What
1: do you do with a dry bun then?
0: Um. Well, you could drizzle icing all over it. All over it. Yeah. I mean, on the rare occasion that I've done it, the icing got all over the mound, but some of it dripped into the hole. That sounds pretty messy. Yeah, you got to watch out for stains. Okay. Let me. I'm just gonna look up the Wikipedia entry for this thing. So, okay. So. It says here that the bunt didn't really gain popularity until 1966 when a bunt called the Tunnel of Fudge took second place at the annual Pillsbury Bake Off. Hmm. But actually, I'm a bit of a purist. I think they missed the mark on that one. I don't think the Tunnel of Fudge was a bunt at all.
1: Do you not want to get your Tunnel of Fudge and your bunt mixed up? Nope.
2: neat haircuts.
0: I think I can only do one story tonight, but you're so tired. No.
2: you want some haircuts.
0: Well, let's read this one first and see what happens, okay? If you're still awake at the end of this one, then we can read another one. Deal? Yeah. I love you. Okay, here we go. So the little old lady who was not afraid of anything. Williams history by Megan Lloyd. It's November as I record this, and the yellow leaves are falling off the birch trees like confetti. Sunlight's soft and coppery and oblique. But despite their loveliness, the days in northern Germany are shortening rapidly, and I get a sense of foreboding when I consider how much daylight has already been spent, and how little we're going to have soon. don't deal well with too much darkness. Maybe you don't either. Maybe I've seen you before. Maybe we've crossed paths. Maybe I saw the chariness or disquiet flash across your face as you realized that what seemed like midnight was really early afternoon. Maybe I understood the meaning of that look on your face automatically, as automatically as I understand the meaning of a traffic light. Maybe I've learned to understand that look and that light. But the understanding feels perfectly natural to me. Maybe I'll compare myself to you. Maybe I'll imagine I am you looking at me and seeing me make that face. Maybe I'll get some idea of what it would be like. But it won't be a very good idea. Maybe I'm one of the things in the world, like this microphone, for this computer. For you. Maybe I should introduce this show. This is A Million Little Gods. And I'm Aaron Gowan. So you're listening to part one of a three-part series of episodes that we'll be releasing every two weeks. And the question we're going to ask has been asked before, even on podcasts, even on great podcasts. In fact, the first full-feature episode of the granddaddy of all podcasts, Radiolab, Lab asked the same question, what does it mean to be a self? And that's okay. I think any answer to that very question will entail coming to grips with what's come before you, because you're part of the world. And I think we handled the question of originality and inheritance pretty well in our own first episode. That first episode of Radiolab came out back in 2005, and I've already made known my belief that 2005 is the year we entered an era. As the Radiolab episode description states, the mind, and self were formerly the domain of philosophers and priests. But in this hour of Radiolab, neurologists lead the charge on profound questions like, how does the brain make me? That description is of its time, and listening to the episode now, it's funny to hear how fresh and intriguing seem all the discussions of the domain-specific modality of the brain, the separability of our minds, the notion that our experience of consciousness is an illusion, in the decades since that episode was released, we've all gotten pretty conversant in these ideas. They remain very current, but I think some of the shine is worn off of them. Perhaps we've noticed some circularity. A lot of the work in cognitive neuroscience takes the answer to some principal questions for granted. And there's a remoteness to it. Few people ever really encounter unusual conditions like prosopagnosia That's the inability to recognize or discriminate between faces. Certainly diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are regular enough to have affected us all directly or indirectly. Even dyslexia, which probably has causes in common with prosopagnosia, But those are exceptions to the rule. They force you to start thinking of yourself as, to paraphrase the radiolab description, made by your brain. But it's our garden variety everyday experiences, the moments that we shouldn't take for granted but maybe we do, that make those neuroscientific explanations of who we are seem so implausible. There's a way of being in the world that is my way of doing it. It's debatable whether I know that way very intimately. Usually, I'm too busy being me to pay attention to what it's like. But a lot of emotionally distressing things have happened in my life. And I've been a player in those events. In fact, I'm the only common denominator. And in those cases, I can't reflect on my behavior and tell you why I did what I did or what it was like to be me in that moment. I don't mean that I don't remember the moments, but calling up those memories feels more like peering through a glass darkly. So for me... These questions have an existential urgency that I guess most people don't give them. In Contra-Chad Abumrad and Robert Krowich, I don't think neuroscientists have gotten the mind and the self to start yielding themselves to their investigatory methods. Over the next three episodes, we'll visit a Center for Cognitive Neuroscience and talk to the researchers there, but we'll talk to a well-known philosopher and a well-known priest about these things too. So there. So, okay, so you may have noticed in the last episode that the logical fallacy of question begging, aka circular reasoning, alias petitio principii, is a hobby horse of mine. It gets my goat. It feels so lazy. You know this thing everyone's favorite example is the Bible one. The Bible is the Word of God because it says so in the Bible. It's a good example, it's always ready at hand, and everyone understands what it means. But I don't like it that much because what it does is accuse one particular substrate of the population, religious people, of being the perpetrators, and that is not fair. Like, not at all. I'm not advocating universal even handedness for its own sake here. Sometimes one group of people is blatantly more to blame for problems than another, like the Republican Party. But in the case of question begging, the problem is universal. And for good reason. In fact, it occurs to me right now that I should stop saying it seems lazy because assumptions are as natural and invisible to us as water to a fish. And they're not always wrong. I assume that someone can explain how fluid dynamics works, because I can't. If you don't make any assumptions, you end up like Julianne Moore in that movie Safe. That scene when she gives a birthday speech? I may be the only one who remembers this movie. It's like from 1995, and yeah, you don't want that. Anyhow, but some assumptions are wrong. Oftentimes, we can be led astray by having false premises, and I think that's happened in the case of cognitive neuroscience. Now, before I continue, let me state for the record that I have the utmost respect for the work of all neuroscientists, including the ones to whom I'm imputing. Ah, oh, screw it. I don't like what these guys are up to. <laughs> Douglas Hofstadter, maybe you know him. He wrote a pretty famous book back in 1979 called godel Escher, An Eternal Golden Braid. He won the Pulitzer. It's a classic text in the canon of cognitive science and artificial intelligence research. Full of puzzles and paradoxes, it's a great read. He and Daniel Dennett co-edited this anthology called The Mind's Eye, the eyes in quotes, and is spelled I. So in that anthology, a Hofstadter has a small, interesting dialogue between three imaginary characters, Chris, Pat, and Sandy. They're physics, biology, and philosophy students, respectively. And in that dialogue, each character brings his or her chosen field's perspective to bear on cognitive science. Sandy says that she's convinced that people are machines, and even though that makes her uncomfortable in some ways, she finds it incredibly exhilarating. Chris, meanwhile, wants to expand on that tinge of discomfort that Sandy mentions, and questions her why humans feel this way. If people are machines, how come it's so hard to convince them of the fact? Surely, if we are machines, we ought to be able to recognize our own machinehood. (laughs) You have to allow for some emotional factors here. To be told you're a machine is, in a way, to be told that you're nothing more than your physical parts. And it brings you face to face with your own mortality. That's something nobody finds easy to face. But beyond the emotional objection, to see yourself as a machine, you have to jump all the way from the bottom-most mechanical level where the complex lifelike activities take place. If there are many intermediate layers, they act as a shield, and the mechanical quality becomes almost invisible. I think that's how intelligent machines will seem to us, and to themselves, when they come around. (laughs) (laughs) Two things. One, Douglas Hofstadter, frickin' brilliant. But he's no Aaron Sorkin. Terrible dialogue. Dude needs a script doctor. Two, my Seinfeld impression is... Mm -mm. Mea culpa. Back to the subject at hand. I think this whole line of thinking is specious. The opposite emotional reaction to reductionism like this is disdain. Like full-on natural scorn for the denial of what we all know in our bones to be true. Look, I'll admit something. I happen not to want this sort of explanation of how the mind works to be right. That's a bias on my part. And yet both my admission and Sandy's argument, that is, that the human response of incredulity at being told that you're nothing more than your physical parts is natural and logical, both of these things elicit a very obvious follow-up question. Why is such incredulity natural? I'm okay with answering that question, but for Hofstadter, the answer is fatal to his whole pretense. I can very easily identify my motivation. Any attempt to explain what the self is, including the rational self with its discursive thoughts through physical or functional reduction, falls prey to self-refutation. It cuts the legs out from under itself. Hofstadter's dismissal of the impulse to believe in your own subjective unity appeals to the authority of that very subjective unity. Did that make any sense? Okay, let me try again. The validity of his argument relies on the existence of the very thing he's trying to prove doesn't exist. Boom. And this can be felt very intuitively. You just get the sense that there's something deeply wrong with explaining the mental as biologically programmed behavior. I'm not talking about a sixth sense here. This is more like the divination that a well-trained mathematician has for a good calculation before she's finally done the crunching. That intuition, the intuition of a skilled and practiced critical thinker, that's my motivation. Let me completely lay bare some facts about me. I am Roman Catholic. Like with a capital C, I'm a religiously believing person, meaning I have an emotional investment in the notion that the mind is at once irreducibly subjective and an irreducibly objective observer of the world, able to discover the truth without practical considerations, to see that something is true, not because it is the best solution to some problem, but rather because it is true. I'm emotionally invested in that belief. I have a native aversion to a worldview that erases any trace of meaning and purpose in the universe. If I let this predisposition cloud my judgment, that's on me. That's irrational. But in case you didn't notice, I'm the one defending rationality here. I'm not the one saying that rational judgments, which are, after all, experiences just as subjective as those of the senses, are nothing more than functions running in the hardware of the brain, programmed somehow through natural selection. Don't get me wrong. I am a thoroughgoing adherent to the theory of natural selection, and I believe my existence results from it. Hofstadter contends that because the subjective mind supervenes on the brain, it must be a manifestly complex program creating the semblance of a uniformly singular subjective self, which is really just a composite illusion. But he can't have his cake and eat it too. He appeals to our subjective selves in saying that it's not easy to face being told that you're nothing more than your physical parts. And, well, he's right. It's not easy to face that notion. Logically. The subjective mind just can't accept the notion that it's an illusion, for it finds itself still there even after it has told itself that it's an illusion. And that's not just the case of an illusion being really persistent. The intentional mental state of trying to accept Hofstadter's line of reasoning is itself a subjective one. A thought requires a subject, even if it involves an objective concept. The conscious self can only appeal to itself to question whether it exists, and though this is seemingly circular, it is... Following Aristotle, not a fallacy. You can't pinpoint conscious experience along big rubber band balls of neurons connected by axons and dendrites, can
3: you? Well, I mean, I do quite. Yes, in looking one sense, I think we can pinpoint it. Um, you know, brutally in a sense. Yeah. See, that's
0: not he's. That's he's now. See, he's supposed to back me up here, but that's he does that. That's. Okay, that's Galen Strawson, chair in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. He previously taught at the University of Reading as well as CUNY in Oxford. He also frequently writes book reviews for The Guardian and appears occasionally on the BBC. His main areas of focus are the philosophy of mind as well as the metaphysics of free will and the self. His 2009 book, Selves, argues that selves exist, but they are not necessarily the same sorts of things as human beings. Talking with him, you, you feel, or, or I feel, like Jacob, wrestling with the angel at every turn he has a creative and audaciously counterintuitive argument that you just find yourself compelled to agree with but reluctantly this effect was accentuated by the sultry texas afternoon deluge that can be heard storming in the background
3: as we spoke the point about that is it's not any sort of reductive remark it's not saying oh consciousness or subjectivity is less than we thought it's saying no matter is a great deal more than we
0: thought. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how I understand you as well. Yeah, that's, yes. that's, that's what I've understood you to be saying. You may have noticed that Professor Strawson just used a familiar word that we spent a while defining in our last episode, or at least he used the adjectival form of the word. He said reductive. More specifically, he said it's not any sort of reductive remark. Let's take a listen to how John Dupre defined reductionism in episode two.
3: People tend to have a hierarchy of view, so they say chemistry is you know, the kind of first level up from physics, and if we understand the physics well enough, we can explain laws of chemistry as somehow consequences of the laws of physics, and then we, you know, ideally move up from there to biology as essentially a very complicated chemistry and the laws of biology, if the laws of biology would somehow be consequences, of the laws of chemistry, and then even up to sociology, or perhaps going another path to population, biology, or evolution.
0: Let's do some stripped-down formal logic. Let's talk about X's and Y's. There's a way of thinking of reductionism in these terms that seems pretty uncontroversial.
3: You can use the expression when you reduce x to y. You say that
0: x is nothing over and above, or nothing more than y.
3: Or really just y.
0: And the thing is, you could just think of this as a simple matter of identity.
3: On the face of it, you're not saying that x doesn't exist, because you're saying x is just y.
0: x equals y, y equals x.
3: But y does exist, so given that y does exist and x is just y.
0: Then y exists
3: too. That's all fine. The trouble with the use of reduction when it comes to the so-called mind-body problem.
0: Which is the age-old problem in philosophy of explaining how mental phenomena, like smelling or seeing or thinking or analyzing or deciding, are related to physical causal events like in your brain or otherwise.
3: is that the thing they're reducing mind to, they take to be something that's non-mental. You can find many explicit statements of this. They say the goal of naturalistic science is to reduce the mental to the non-mental. But that, that is... Elimination, eliminativism, that really is the denial of the existence of consciousness. They all say, no, it isn't. I'm saying that consciousness is just this, just this, these neural firings. I mean, one of the examples I give is, suppose I say that conscious experience is just pizza. Okay. Um, So that's my theory. And so that's it. So pizza exists, so I'm not denying the existence of consciousness because I'm saying it's just pizza and and I'm... I'm sure that pizza does exist. But of course, really, <laughs> pizza is not conscious. And that's the trick that they play here. So although reduction X to Y, formally speaking, isn't saying that what X doesn't exist, in this case, it is saying that X doesn't exist because it's reducing it to something that just isn't consciousness.
0: Aren't you, I mean, I can think, I'm not going to name any names here, but I can think of several thinkers who would immediately respond to you and say, no, you're giving up. You're just, you're just giving into mystery where there should be no mystery You're, you're you're allowing mystery to exist where actually we can reduce it to to the physical somehow. We just don't know
3: how to do it yet. I will say yes. We 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 don't even. I'd say well, we don't even have to reduce it to the physical. It is, it, it
0: is that. Yeah, it okay. is physical.
3: But you're wrong about what the physical is. I mean, these are the people who call themselves naturalists, and I call them. Anti-naturalists. In fact, I call them (laughs) naturalists.
0: Okay, I've never heard that. Okay.
3: They take, what is, if you ask yourself, without preconception, without belonging to the church of science, what natural thing do we most certainly know to exist? The answer is consciousness. It's, It's an ancient point that the only thing we really know for certain to exist is conscious experience.
0: There's a lot more to say about this matter, and we're going to take it up, among many other things, in parts two and three of this series of episodes. Think of this first part as setting the stage. And in that vein, let me drive home why these things matter to me. I am constantly concerned with myself. Most everyone is, to some extent. I don't mean it in a self-obsessed, narcissistic sense. Neither for me nor for most people that I know. At least I hope there's a distinction to be made there. I mean, I reflect on myself a lot. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. That might be the case. Quite frankly, I wish I could knock it off sometimes. In that sense, I, I do sort of feel exceptional. I hardly ever rely on intuition or instinct. I wish I could. On those rare occasions when I do, it seems to me like it always ends badly. I find myself behaving in ways I don't understand. Sometimes I just lose my shit. I remember getting into a profanity filled screaming match over the phone with my brother shortly before the 2008 presidential election. I think the argument was about who was responsible for the collapse of the financial market banks or regulators. At some point, my brother shouted that I didn't know what I was talking about in an adverbially more ornate manner. And then I unleashed an unmitigated torrent of insults at him. I mean, I went into what I now can only call a fugue state. Felt less like an agent with free will and more like an observer feebly trying to regain control and thinking of ways to rationalize my overreaction once it had passed. Before I could recover composure and control of my autopiloted mouth, my brother had already hung up. I suppose that sort of thing happens all the time. People make jokes about getting into fights with their family members. But it didn't seem funny to me. I just kept thinking back to a time when I must have been about six and my brother was ten and we'd been at our neighbor's house and I ran back home without telling my brother and then I went to the grocery store with my mom in the car. When he realized I wasn't at the neighbor's house anymore, he thought he had lost me. And he started searching everywhere in the neighborhood for me. That was for like over an hour, and I remember how desperate he looked when he pulled back into the driveway. When he saw me there, contentedly scraping handy snack cheese product onto a cracker with a little red plastic stick, he should have been upset with me. But he just took me in his arms and told me how much he loved me. Why couldn't I call upon that memory in 2008 when we started fighting instead of going berserk? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I have more to confess and dissect in the next part. But there are two other people I'm also constantly concerned with. One in particular. What were you saying?
2: Hello. I'm back.
0: Okay, but that's, a, that's I an like, interesting... Yo, go ahead.
2: like stars. And sometimes I like lions. Yeah. I like books, too. TV not so much. Sometimes in the evening. But I like masks, too.
0: You wear a lot of them, that's true.
2: Yeah. You like or, to put on costumes? like to put on costumes. That's right. There. So... I like I like going to into the museum.
0: Yeah.
2: Or in, or sometimes I like cuddling in the bed. Oh, that's like good Like we're too. doing now and mm. I like very 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 much the Raven to
0: read. Oh yeah, you like to read the the Raven, yeah. Yeah. So. We'll do that one, but I got a couple of questions for you. You just told me about yourself, but if I say, if I ask you, who are you, could you tell me who you are? I mean, you just told me you're Ben, but who are you? How do you know you're you and not and not somebody else?
2: Ben. I'm just Ben.
0: How do you know? Um,
2: well, mommy told me my name when I was little. Yeah. So, but.
0: But who are you now? Uh, ben. How do you know?
2: Well, don't know that either.
0: I don't know either, huh? Uh, it's kind of hard to know, it, isn't it? If I said, what makes you Ben and not Ruby? What would you say?
2: Well, he's a little girl and I'm a little boy, so. <laughs> That's true. That makes me have a better good name because ruby shouldn't be my name because if my name were ruby um i would have a girl name so
0: <laughs> that's true my son has a remarkable little mind He has a tremendous capacity for language, a memory like an elephant, a mind like a steel trap, an insatiable curiosity, an unwavering sense of fairness, and an imagination that knows no bounds. He also has an outsized sense of himself as a self. His joy and good humor can crumble under the pressure of the slightest critique. And like me, he mulls over his own bad moods and failures. It's a struggle for him. I wonder whether it's just genetic. I wonder whether he would have ended up that way if I hadn't been around. Or whether he's noticed my conundrum and made it his own. My wife and I split up last year, and I feel like it's too hard a to blow for someone as sensitive as him. In the last few months, he's shown signs, not merely of self-pity or despondency, which he's bound to have, and I can relate to that, but of hardness. One night last week, he constantly made noise as I was trying to bring his little sister to bed, and he eventually made me lose my temper. And his reaction was a cruel laugh, as if to say he knew he was in control.
2: It frightened me. I wish him
0: a lighter way of living than my own. But in the end, I'd rather he have a heavy heart than a heart locked away. There's one thing I wish to teach both my children, is that when things happen to you or when you do things wrong, let it wash over you. Accept rejection. Accept disillusionment. Accept embarrassment. Accept uncertainty. I've had my share of trouble. I've lost my father to cancer too early. I've been fired. I've had two failed marriages though I didn't choose to end either of them. But I've never let these troubles harden me. I've obstinately refused to give up hope. That's my form of grace. I believe it's a virtue in me. And virtue should be passed on. But here's the thing. Here's where I have to embrace uncertainty just a little more. That refusal to give up hope might be virtuous, but it's also part of my nature. Ben deserves to be the way he's going to be. Ruby, my daughter, deserves to be the way she's going to be. Ben's his own self. His character's not mine. His life is not mine. So help me, I do wish to spare him my obsessiveness. I wish joy for him, but more than that, I wish him the freedom to be himself. In We'll talk more about being a self in part two of the series. Professor Strawson will be back and will be joined by Father James Martin, Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at at the Jesuit magazine America. A Million Little Gods is produced by me. I'm Aaron Gowan, with help from Chris Lewis, Todd Harrop, and Nick McDonald. Our theme song is by Nick's band, Recycled. Thanks to Dayan Wegner and Martin Barron. You can follow us online at amillionlittlegods.com. We're also on Twitter, the handle's at AMLG Podcast. Join us on Facebook and start a conversation at facebook.com slash a million little gods. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. And please take the time to write a review of our show. It really helps us out. The leaves have completely fallen off the birch trees now, except for a few stragglers. The branches are heavy with snow today. It's almost Thanksgiving back in the US, so happy Thanksgiving to all my listeners there. We'll be back in two weeks. Till then, Temet Noska. Whatever that means.